0: Welcome to the Hearing Review Podcast. I'm Carl Strum, Editor of the Hearing Review, and today we'll be looking at the issues of OTC hearing aids and the FDA's proposed regulations for them. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Powers, Ph.D. Dr. Powers is a semi-retired audiologist and one of the most respected industry audiologists in hearing health care. He spent 35 years at Siemens Hearing Instruments, which has since become Signio or part of the WS audiology group, where Tom was the chief research officer. And um, he was also the main U.S. compliance officer for Siemens, which means he's uh, all too well acquainted with many of the necessary specifications and regulations that the FDA requires for putting a hearing aid on the market um, as a, mark, as a Class 1 or Class 2 medical device, which is how hearing, uh, hearing aids are um, defined by the FDA. Tom is now the founder and managing member of uh, Powers Consulting, where he is working on several different hearing-related companies and organizations, and one of the more recent ones being the Hearing Industries Association, or HIA, which is the main U.S. trade organization of hearing aid manufacturers. Uh, he joins us today from his home near Oxford, New Jersey. Tom, welcome to the Hearing Review podcast.
1: Thanks, Carl. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and great to uh, sort of be out and about in the, in the hearing world again talking to folks. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Now you're semi-retired, but um, I can't really uh, picture you as a retired person. Um, you, you've been so active in the industry through the years, um, but I suppose you have more time now to, uh, to tend to your farm a little bit?
1: Yeah, I do. You know, uh, a little over 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I bought this uh, farm, we call it. It's about 10 acres in northwest New Jersey. Uh, the house was built in 1843 by wow. Reuben Mitchell. Um, and Reuben, um, uh, it was kind of an interesting and colorful guy, but maybe that's uh, for, for another another time. He was the local moonshiner, which is maybe why I oh, like really? this place so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 the, the spring that runs through where his still was, still is on the property. So, uh, yeah, so uh, but we have sheep on the property here and, and some goats that uh, allow us to be assessed as a farm in New Jersey. So you need a, a minimum amount of acres and also a minimum revenue per year. So we um, have, have lambs and the lambs go off to petting zoos around the country. Um, they might go some other places, but people like to think they go to petting zoos. Um, and uh, and uh, that provides the revenue. And uh, so it, it's kind of a, a great place. My neighbor across the street boards horses and the property that backs up behind me is an orchard of 170 acres. So uh, we're sort of out here in rural New Jersey. That sounds idyllic. It's great.
0: I want to get into the OTC hearing aid regulations today, and um, and you know specifically, what's your take on them? I mean, you've been involved with the hearing industry, like I said, for thirty five years, and um, and uh, you know you've you've helped out the uh, HIA in a lot of capacities and consulting through the years. Um, before we get into it, um, you know these FDA proposed regulations—they weren't churned out haphazardly, were they? I mean, the the agency. He really did do a lot of careful listening, um, and the 114-page document reflects that. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think if you, when you read through that, and and uh, I have to admit, I've done that several times <laughs> more than I probably want to think about. But uh, I, I think there's there's quite a few references in there, you know, to uh, to what led up to the regulation, and certainly now the the proposed rule. Uh, both from a lot of the federal agencies, the FDA themselves, the FTC, uh, the PCAST and National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine, NASM, previously, you know, Institute of Medicine. Um, and there is, there is some semi, you know, references also to the consensus paper. While it's not specifically referenced per se, uh, they do talk, you know, about some of, of the things that were in the consensus paper uh, from the main audiology and, and dispensing organizations.
0: And that was the American Academy of Audiology, the Academy of uh, Doctors of Audiology, and the International Hearing Society, as well as um, ASHA, the American Speech-Language Hearing
1: Association. Right. Yeah, the three main audiology uh, groups, as well as IHS. So yeah, they all uh, collaborated on that document. And uh, it was pretty, I thought, a pretty comprehensive document uh, as it related to uh, comments on on where they all thought this should go to to primarily, I think, protect consumers in an environment where there's not a professional involved.
0: Right. So let's get to some of the finer points of the proposed regulations, starting with the FDA's um, proposed maximum output for um, OTC hearing aids. Uh, You know, what is the FDA proposing and what was the position of the consensus statement on um, output limits?
1: yeah the, the the current rule uh proposes two two levels uh, uh, uh the initial level i'll call it if you will or the 115 db uh output limit uh for uh, otc devices in general and then i'll i don't know if it's really an exception but a secondary rule where the output could go to 120 db if those devices included a volume control and input controlled compression to have some protection against uh, you know high output levels the consensus paper on the other hand uh, proposed uh, an output limit of 110 with a gain limit of 25 um, there is no gain limit or any mention of a gain restriction in the in the rules from the fda so in essence the, the only real um part of the gain and output equation that's in the in the document is the 115 120 uh, levels in the new rule or the proposed rule it's not final yet
0: do you, do you agree that there's with the you know i mean i've heard some people say that um there really ought to be some sort of gain limit in there i mean is that a is that a hearing industry kind of or, or audiology type of thing where we need a gain limit, or or, or do you think that's a valid um, comment?
1: You know, I, I think the issue there is, you know, the consensus paper indicated that it that it would be difficult, not impossible, because they did recommend twenty five, but but it would be difficult to, to establish a specific gain requirement particularly because you're talking about mild to moderate hearing loss. And, and whether you're talking about someone who's been tested or someone who has perceived mild to moderate hearing loss, which, which could be anywhere as we both know. I mean, people tend to under or overestimate their hearing loss. So I think, I think gain is a difficult thing to, to specify. I mean, if you look at what the NAL predictions would be from somebody from 25 to a 55 dB hearing loss, the gain is gonna vary quite a bit in in that range. And so to say, maybe it should be in the middle, should it be at the upper point, should it be at the lower point? So, you know, as an audiologist, uh, I would say, yes, I think we should be looking at some type of of gain. Um, I don't know if we wanna call it a limit or at least a proposal. Uh, You know, the industry felt pretty strongly uh, for the most part. There were there were comments on the other side that that also felt that that there shouldn't be a gain restriction. And also on the output side, there were comments on both sides from uh, from organizations and people that thought the 120 was OK. For for me, the 120 is is a bit of an issue only because of the way it was defined. And that is, um, you know, it, it was defined by OSHA and NIOSH requirements that you have 30 seconds you know in that environment right. and really then you have 30 seconds to rip your hearing aid off if it if it gets too loud <laughs> I, I think that that argument was a little a little strange to me as as an audiologist and having fit hearing aids on patients years ago when i was in private practice uh, it, it isn't always that easy to find the volume control and or, you know, take the hearing aid off. But um, but but that's what's in the rule. And, and uh, people, you know, a, a thousand comments went to the FDA. So they're now working their way through them.
0: The, the comment that people just will take off the hearing aids if they're too loud. I mean, there's, there are also, um, you know, uh, people who can't, t- you know, people who are intellectually disabled and things like that, that might not be able to to take that off. There's also a a paper that we published from Tom Tedeschi and, um, Christine Jones about how the 110, uh, OSPL 90 is, is applicable really to a very, very wide swath of, of, um, of people that we treat, uh, or audiologists treat.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know that's where I think a lot of the the audiology uh, groups and, and individuals fall is uh, you know that it's it's a reasonable level and and I think you know some of the comments also were you know this doesn't necessarily have to be the rule for the ages I mean we could you know initially look at at one ten I think I read some of the I didn't read all thousand but I read a lot of the comments that went in um, that that you know proposed potentially. Re-examining a, a lot, not only the gain and output and, and other requirements uh, of this in uh, the next three to five year period, as the FDA gains more experience and we we learn what other types of things. I mean, we're going to talk about consumer protections maybe later, but 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 the whole gamut of of things that are in this proposed rule. Um, and so, yeah, 110 I think is is reasonable for a lot of people. On the other hand, you know, if I if I step back and say, let me say what, what some of the opposing comments were is that that's restricting the the people who could use the devices by limiting the output to only one ten, and that if there is input compression in in the device, then maybe one fifteen or one twenty would expand the population and provide better, Affordability and or access, uh, you, you can debate either of those, but those those are the reasons why we're here, right? Is the affordability right. and access part? So I think, you know, I, I could certainly, if I if I had to, if, you know, I'm an audiologist, not a lawyer, but if I were, I could argue, I guess, both sides.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, you had mentioned consumer protections, and I think one of the murkiest parts of the FDA regulation had to do with um, return for credit policies and complaints when the otcs don't uh, otc devices don't work can you can you give me your take on what the fda is proposing here
1: yeah you know the, the, the fda is proposing that the manufacturers uh, of the devices state their return or recredit policy however they're not requiring them to necessarily accept returns their their position is that consumers, as they review these OTC devices and find that there is not a return privilege, for example, um, that that would limit people from from trying the device because, you know, I want to be able to return it. While I understand that position, and I think that certainly could be a, a deterrent, I'm not sure that everybody's going to dig that deep into, um, you know, the, the return policies, the you know, what, what else is in the device? Uh, you know, if I really want to buy it because it has Bluetooth, am I, am I going to get something and find out it doesn't have any kind of wireless capabilities? So, um, you know, I, I think it's really trying to ask consumers to make a choice about what's in the device again without the help of a professional and make sure that they get the right device and that if, if they don't. What happens? Are we going to end up with, uh, you know, as Sergey used to call dresser drawer comments, you know, back in the old market track days? So I, I think it, it's 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 really something that I, I believe a lot of cons- a lot of uh, the comments were that there should be a set of of policies. You know, one of the more interesting comments was from one of the companies that th- there should be only a seller's return privilege, not the manufacturers, and and so you get the idea that. Potentially, uh, they want whoever the retailer is to take that that responsibility and really that risk. I mean, if you know, if it's one in a hundred, that's one thing. If the returns are forty, fifty percent, it's another thing. Right. So um, I think this thing, huge, yeah. you know,
0: it's a huge issue because I mean, right now, you know, our the the for hearing aids, it's it's around fifteen. It's historically been around fifteen to twenty percent, right? I mean, depending on and higher for. Um, devices like CICs so i mean that that's that's a of something that you really have to focus uh, in terms of a business model on and and the thing that strikes me is that why wouldn't hearing aid manufacturers just say, "Well, this is an OTC hearing aid"? <laughs> and, and-
1: well, there, you know that that that's an interesting, you know, part of this discussion is how how does this all you know move forward? But I think, um, you know, this whole return privilege thing, you know, is is a real, uh, I think, a real interesting and, and you're right, a murky point of this whole thing because if the whole idea again is access and affordability access you can get these devices we're going to make it as easy as possible let's say that but then affordability is you, you can't then say you're trying to do that and then when somebody buys something say we're well, sorry you can't you can't return it and you just got to stick it somewhere when you've spent three four five hundred dollars pick a number or more um, I, I think that's I, I don't think that's really should be the spirit of what this rule should be about. So I, I, I hope that they uh, actually come back and say, yes, there should be a, a specific return privilege. Cause you're right in, in hearing aids, you know, it's at the manufacturer level, 15%, probably at the clinic, it's a lot less than that because, you know, sometimes somebody wants a CIC and then they can't handle it. Right? So now that CIC comes back and they get a, a full shell ITE or they get a BTE. Well, the manufacturer sold two to get one in the clinic. They sold one i mean that the other one came back the money you know it all washes out in, in the in the wash but um but again with no professional there the consumer has no recourse and so i think uh, i think that's that's an important part and, and you know maybe a little later we'll talk about the, one of the responses was from the attorney generals which was to this point so we'll maybe come back to that
0: um And you know, I also want to touch on something that I know very little about: it. uh, Five ten k pre market clearance documents. You've done a a ton of them in your career, I know, and I know I know they're tedious and painful to put together from the people like you who I've talked to about with them. But they are important, aren't they? And uh, can you tell us what what a five ten k is? Why they're important? Why they might be important for? for OTC hearing aid devices to have and um, how they fit or how they don't fit in FDA's proposed regulations for these OTC aids.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, the 510K is is a filing document, uh, you know, to the FDA when, when you intend uh, to market a medical device. Um, And, and, and for some of them, uh, obviously they're they're pretty comprehensive. Uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, a def- an, a, an implantable defibrillator, or you know, other other. Things that that end up in your body, it, it's a pretty extensive device. Hearing aids, it's it's you know we're certainly we're not implanting them in your in your skull. But cochlear implants certainly they have a, a very high bar. They're a class three device, of course. Hearing aids are, are class one and two, but but the device that the filing document itself uh, has all the information about the product that you intend to market. So. The basic technical requirements, uh, you know, gain, output, distort, and then distortion, the things we would normally think about, but also there's a whole series of measurements on the radiated output of that device. Um, you know, how how much, if there's wireless capabilities, make sure that that's in line with the wireless capabilities and it doesn't exceed uh, a safe levels for humans. So there's, there's a whole series of, of, of measurements that the manufacturer uh, of the device needs to make to ensure that it's, that it is safe, it's effective, and it does what it's going to do. And, you know, it it, it's pages of documents, um, in the case of, uh, you know, some of the, the 510k's or with a de novo process that bose followed and others uh, you know there's some clinical data that has to be collected and and submitted along with with that document so it's a it's a pretty substantial document and as this relates to, to OTC uh, you know the, the 510k is only proposed for the self-fitting OTC for maybe for people that haven't been around this, um, there are two classifications, one OTC devices and then self-fitting OTC devices. And self-fitting have what the FDA calls tools and tips and software. In other words, an app or some way to adjust its sliders, gain, output, frequency response, base trouble, all of those things that would allow the consumer to self-fit and adjust the device. An OTC might have a push button that lets you cycle through pre-programs pre uh, yeah. that are in the device. And so when you take it out of the box, there's really no adjusting. And so that, that's the difference. And so where a lot of the comments came in is that why not make a 510K required for everybody the first time that they submit one of these devices? That's not the way it, it's proposed in the rule, but I think that would ensure that not only do those companies register with the FDA as a medical device manufacturer, but also have some requirement to disclose what their device Is going to do what is what's the gain? What's the output? You know how much radiated output do you have? I mean, are you going to follow quality standards, etc.? So, um, it's a it's a relatively comprehensive document uh, here, even for hearing aids. Certainly for you know higher level devices, uh, it it gets pretty complicated. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want I I knew some of the guys that did the ones for MRIs, and I I wouldn't want to be involved in that (laughs) when I was back in Siemens. So yeah.
0: But no. they, but they are important for for establishing kind of a baseline anyway. Or is would there? I'm just throwing this out. Is there anything like? A, it, it, they're all the same for for hearing devices. Then there there isn't like a like a five ten k light or anything like that that they that you have?
1: No, there's minimum requirements that that need to be, you know, contained in the document, you know, that that, that show, again, what the device is doing from a performance standpoint. Uh, You know, I mean, early on when we started having wireless devices, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of measurements that had to be done uh, when it was either between the ear or when we started streaming, uh, you know, how much, is that putting out and comparing it to other devices like cell phones? I mean, you're talking about hundreds of times less the, the power, yet, you know, you still have to make sure that that those measurements are done and that the FDA can uh, make a decision. Is this a safe and effective device that's doing what it says it's going to do? so it can be approved, you know, for market release. I mean, the FDA doesn't really approve devices per se. They say you're approved to to sell it into the marketplace uh, under whatever controls are required. I mean, hearing aids do have some general controls, prescription devices on quality standards, you know, testing that has to be done, design requirements. So good manufacturing practices as they're usually referred to. And, And so if none of that is there, there is no guarantee that even if somebody puts a spec sheet on their website, that, that that device is going to do that. I mean, there's just no there's there's no guarantee without any kind of of um, oversight, if you will, uh, by by the FDA.
0: Right. Good. Um, now, there also seems to be a lot hinging on whether or not the states will uh, the state laws pertaining to um hearing devices will remain or if the FDA's regulations will basically make them moot. And I know a lot of people have fears about what happens if the various local and state regulations get basically get wiped off the, the books. Can you tell us about what you might think will result when, it, when and if something like that would happen?
1: yeah you know I, i think this goes back to what we were talking earlier about consumer protections because you know most most of the state licensing requirements um, for, for either audiologists or for hearing care specialists or dispensers, whatever we, you know term we want to use there. Um, you know, all, all of the things that they're a required to do. In other words, you have to do a hearing test, you have to do air bone. I mean, there are certain things that you're required to do as a part of that license. But the other part of, of it is, as a licensed professional, there are things that flow through your license, like the return privilege, like what is the trial period? Do you have to have an itemized receipt? Um, what are the things you have to tell people, uh, et cetera, as you are selling them a, a hearing aid uh, in in this particular environment? so if if those go away, there there in many places, there will be no consumer protection because that typically is done through the license. Now, there are still some laws, state laws. govern all all things that are sold so so you know these are usually sometimes called lemon laws so if you buy something and it's just you know horrible you do have some rights under a lot of state law to to get it replaced or repaired or whatever um but in but in terms of, of having professionals that I have to follow some rules. Uh, you know, we're going back pre-1977 when it was the Wild West. And and, and uh, I, I guess I can say people were selling, you know, hearing aids out of the trunk of their car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so so I think a, a lot of that is, uh, you know, is an issue. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that's a concern is that the states, you know, don't want it to be necessarily dependent on the fact that you have to see a professional, because that's certainly excluded by the legislation. But I think the states want to say, listen, we, we, we want to reserve the right to keep these licensing restrictions and consumer protections in place through the licensing requirement. Um, and I think that was that was very strongly uh, sent to the FDA by the, the state attorneys general. I mean, there were over 40 of them that sent uh, a letter to the FDA requesting you know, that, that these are important and that they'd like to keep them in place. Um, You know, that, that this is how consumer protection works at the state level. You know, in many cases, it's not a federal thing, you know, it's a state thing. And so they really want that um, requirement. They should not be exempted and uh, it should, you know, put a process in place also for how these may or may not be exempted. And then also that there could be an appeal. I mean, right now, if they just get wiped away and there's no, there's no, Recourse. Um, now you're leaving the states with with really some some real dilemmas in terms of how do you enforce uh, any of the other laws that are on the books. So so it's really a, a a really that's just a real quagmire. I you know I I usually do my white coat blue coat little talk where you know you somebody walks in and and I, I tell them I'm a new audiologist. I'm Dr. Tom Powers. I'm here for a hearing test. I have my white coat on, Dr. Powers. I tell them afterwards, here's you have a mild hearing loss, you could have an OTC device or you could have a prescriptive hearing aid. Well, now, if I want an OTC device, do I have to run in the back and find a different color coat and come back out that says Tom? And and now all the stuff that I told them about how my all my training and all my all that goes away. And I'm just Tom again trying to I mean, you, you can see how this just becomes so confusing Especially for consumers, forget about the professionals. Somehow we'll find a way, but but I think the consumers are really the people here that that I think we have to we have to do our best to try and give them, uh, you know, the best of both access affordability. I mean, this is the whole point here, but also provide some protection so that they don't get a device uh, that doesn't work or, or causes them harm. I mean, those are the two things we want to be sure of.
0: And but also from a professional standpoint, and most of the people listening to this will be hearing care professionals. I mean, you know, your licensure and, and how you, you know, how you jog that white coat, blue coat kind of thing is, I mean, it, it, there's, there's some real fundamental ethical types of things here. You know, if, if, you, if you ask me and you're kind of playing with your, with your um, board licensure for, for the, the state.
1: Exactly. And, and, you know, it puts you in in many ways, uh, you know, at a complete disadvantage. I mean, let's assume that some of the state regulations stay in play. Uh, You know, somebody could open two doors down in a strip mall where you've got your, you know, my office and, you know, there's, there's John down there and he's just got a big sign OTCs come get him, you know, and, and, No return privilege. Again, if let's assume what we've talked about before, there isn't a specific, you know, and he could state a policy on a little sign somewhere in the corner. Once you buy it, you own it, you know, sort of like when you break it, you own it in a China shop. Right. Uh, And so it's a real it's a real dilemma, I think. Uh, And again, I don't want to play the professionals are are being, you know, uh, you know, preyed upon here. But but it puts them in a tough position, I think, when you're trying to encourage people to come in. And I think that's something that that the industry and audiologists and, and, and I think consumer groups, HLAA, everybody is, you know, we really need to make sure that we try to encourage people to at least have a hearing test because then you know whether you're really mild to moderate and, and or you have something else. I mean, you know, even though PCAST way back in the, you know, you were there for some mm-hmm. of those discussions, you know, it's, I, I don't want to say didn't really have any concern about the, you know, one or 2% of people that might have acoustic tumors, you know, somehow that red flag is what we'll find them somehow. But, you know, the last thing we want is to have people have medical issues and think they can solve this problem, uh, you know, with an over-the-counter device. So, So above all, we you know again let's let's be safe and effective. That's that's the job of the FDA, and I think as professionals, that's what we want to try to do: is get people in and give them their options, and then let them make uh, you know informed decisions. And if they decide to try an OTC device, great. But if it doesn't work, give them the ability to send it back, and uh, and then maybe seek a, a prescriptive solution, as it's now going to be called. You know, OTC self fitting, and now the prescriptive side.
0: Right anything else that that really hits you when you when you're reading through the fda regu- you know proposed regulations about you know what hearing care professionals or consumers in general really need to be alert about on this issue and how would you also how would you recommend that hearing care professionals prepare for these upcoming regulations
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think th- to me, the best thing, and I, and I know it's a long document, but I encourage anybody who hasn't already read it to read it, to read it, um, and and really try to understand how it's going to impact where, where they are, whether it's consumers, you know, how, how am I going to access these devices? Uh, and professionals, how am I going to Potentially include these in my practice. Um, you know, I, th- I think we've hit. You know, what I what I think are certainly the main points. Um, I mean, there are some that are. You know, the labeling requirements. You know, I mean, if you you know if you look at the document, there's they are huge huge things, and and hearing aids are small little gadgets, so. If I look at the labeling requirements, I mean, I could see a little box that's two by two with an eight and a half by 11 piece of cardboard attached to it with all the labeling. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways that seems a little a little silly. So so somehow we're going to have to figure that out, too. So I, I think there's a lot of other aspects to this. But I, I think, you know, read the document uh, and if, if possible, go into the FDA site. I mean, you can go there. You can read the comments that are from from all the organizations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and consumers, um, and and sort of be educated. Um, I, I think to prepare for this, I think you need to take a look at your practice and decide uh, how can this work for me. And, and and I say it that way because I, I believe. That if I was still in practice, I would be including OTC devices of some kind into my practice because we have a huge group of people with mild hearing loss, maybe even moderate hearing loss, who are situational wearers, as I call them. And, and, you know... They're they're not ready. They may need it, but they're not ready to wear something full time, or at least feel that they have to wear something full time. They certainly could wear a prescriptive device part time, but then the cost becomes an issue, and so forth. So I think to get people to to at least start the process, you know, you know, from market track, you know, four years, six years before you do anything. So let's let's try to to do that, and then how do I integrate this into into my practice? I'm going to need to think about which devices. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to include. So start, start checking out the websites of all the new people that are coming in. I mean, we we could spend the next half hour listing them all because there's quite a few, right. um, but, but look at them, decide if they're right for your practice. How do they work? Do they have, do they let you return them? I mean, if you're going to sell them to consumers. Uh, and then I think the other, the other big thing here that, that uh, I don't know if it's really the elephant in the room or what it is, but it's the unbundling part of, of our whole industry. Um, you know, if if these devices start looking like hearing aids, walking like hearing aids, talking like hearing aids, and cost much different than hearing aids prescriptive, uh, consumers are going to ask, "What's the difference?" And I think we need to have we, we need to have that discussion with ourselves <laughs> and say, "How how am I going to do that in my practice? How am I going to sell these devices? What's the cost structure? What what services should I add?" Uh, at least a hearing test, one or two follow-ups, some counseling. Where do you sit when you go to dinner? All those kinds of things that we try to counsel patients about, um, and maybe you know find a, a way to do that. Maybe with some help from your office manager, depending on how busy they are. Uh, audiology assistants are becoming more common, so
0: and it might ne- it I, might necessitate I, some teleaudiology components and, and that type of thing too. So, uh,
1: absolutely, you know, I think the, the other piece of this is is going to be the the teleaudiology solution. The audiology, you know, the audiology speech compact is coming. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I think about with the audiology compact is your competitors aren't only going to be in your state. They're going to be from other states because once you get privileges, uh, if you live in Colorado and get privileges in, well, Nevada, I don't know, I can't remember which states are in, but right. so nobody quote me at that. But but let's assume it, you know, it's all of a sudden uh, somebody could walk in your office and say, I bought this from somebody in Colorado. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, he he has privileges in your state, and right. he sent it. And as, as long as mail order is not prohibited, and blah blah blah. So so I think it it really changes the whole dynamic here in terms of how how we provide care to patients, um, to you know, not only across. Yeah. yeah, Not only across uh, products, but across state lines and across the, across the world potentially. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So I, th- I think you know, getting ready uh, has to start now. I mean, we we expect. Uh, well, the FDA has, in theory, six months. July, uh, you know, is about when we expect the, the comments closed in January. So in July, we could see the final document in the in the Federal Register. Uh, when that happens, uh, everybody's going to get a chance to read it. But the comments are done. That's it. This is now the rule. And 60 days after that, the rule goes into effect. And in theory, if people are preparing their their documents and filed pre-filed FDA 510ks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, August September, you could start seeing some some real really defined and called OTC devices on the market. I know we have some that are out there today that are masquerading as that, but um, but we we could see them later this year. Uh, who knows? I mean, that, that all depends on the FDA getting their job done by, right. in six months. And mm-hmm. uh, they've got a lot of comments to run through.
0: And it's a big task, yeah.
1: Well, a big, big task.
0: Tom, you know, I know there's a lot more to talk about on this issue, um, but I think that's all the time we have today, and I really thank you for um, for your expertise and, uh, and chiming in and helping with the HR podcast. Thank you, Tom.
1: You're welcome. It's good to talk with you, Carl, and I hope we'll, we'll see you in person sometime along the road here.
0: Truly. Uh, Dr. Thomas Powers is the founder and managing member of Powers Consulting, and he spoke with us today on March 8th, 2022. I'd like to thank him and Medcore Marketing Manager Bryce Lachman for their help on this podcast. Relevant links and and correspondence can be accessed on the landing page of the podcast at hearingreview.com. For The Hearing Review, I'm Carl Strum. Thanks for listening.